Well, we the people do not like authority, do we? Uh, We can say that about people in general. Of course, that looks different in different cultures, in different times, in different places. But if we were to focus on our own culture, American culture, we were founded on a revolution against authority, a certain type of authority, and we can argue the merits of that revolution or not. But the point is that 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 attitude that has pervaded our culture. We are especially, and we see this displayed more and more, but we've seen it in the last few decades, that our culture displays an anti-authority, anti-institutional stance constantly. But if you understand what authority is and how God has designed authority, you understand that authority, rightly exercised, is a gift from God. Good authority, right authority. We don't like to think of authority as good at all, but good authority, right authority, is a gift from God. What is authority? Authority is not just power. Not just power. Because someone could have power but not rightly use it. No, authority is the moral right to exercise power. It is the moral right to exercise power. It is authorization. You are authorized to use power in a certain way. And as we look at scripture, there are really only two types of legitimate authority. There is absolute authority, but only God has that authority. Only God absolutely has the moral right to use his power however he chooses. He is absolute. He is the absolute authority. And then everything else that's truly legitimate authority is delegated. Delegated authority. Authorized authority. Um, So the idea is that God would authorize some agent of his to exercise power, exercise authority. And we see this even in the very early chapters, even the marching orders for humankind. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, you don't have to turn there, but Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God creates man, but he creates man as his image to do what? To rule, to have dominion as male and female, to exercise authority. And not just for the, not ultimately for the good of man and woman, although that does happen, but ultimately for God's glory, for the fame of his name. You see, authority, when it is rightly used, will, is given for the flourishing of others and for the world at large. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 23, David, the king, at the end kind of of his life and reflecting on it, he reflects on what proper good authority should look like. This is what he says in 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 4. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here's what David says, verse 2. The spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, and what has God said? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Isn't that beautiful that when authority is rightly practiced, when it is justly practiced under the fear of God, 
then it causes human flourishing and the flourishing of the world at large. You can see this in Psalm 72, which is a picture. uh, It's written by Solomon, but it's a picture of the ultimate Davidic king, the ultimate son of David, ruling. And the picture is of plenty and blessing and justice, all of these things because a true and right authority is ruling. So authority is good. It is a good gift, and yet we understand in a fallen world it has been twisted. It has been twisted. And really, it's been twisted from the very beginning, because if we were to go back to Genesis 3, and man and woman's first sin against God, the first sin is rebellion against God's authority. What did the serpent say? You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And essentially, what the serpent is tempting Adam and Eve to do is to step out from under God's authority and to become their own authorities, to be independent, to be self-autonomous, self-authorizing, because that's what a God is, self-authorizing. And so that rebellion, that rebellion has formed two, essentially two authority structures in the world, or at least two sources of appeal for authority. The right appeal to authority is authority, the right source for authority is authority from heaven, authority from God, delegated authority, as we said. But then there is authority from humanity, authority from humans. And we see this. We see this in our own culture and time, the idea that, well, my appeal to authority is not God at all. It's not heaven. It's to myself to or some other human authority. That is the ultimate source, human authority. And that, has be, that began in Genesis 3, and it has continued down to this day. And it is at issue in our passage this morning in Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Jesus has re-entered the temple. You remember uh, uh, the, the, the night before this, um, what we see in the passage this morning, he had, uh, the, the, the day before this, he had gone into the temple, into the beating heart of wor- uh, the, the place of worship for God, or what it's supposed to be anyway, and he's flipping over tables and chairs, he's confronting people because worship had become corrupt. And on the way back that morning, he had cursed a fig tree. We said that that represented that wicked generation of Israel, especially the leaders, who were all leaf and no fruit. And then he was on his way when he cursed the fig tree into Jerusalem and into the temple, and that's where we find him. And then he has another encounter with the leadership. And authority is what is at issue. And so really, this, this morning, the question, really this passage asks us a question, and that's going to be at play in this passage. Do you actively submit to heavenly or human authority? There's only two options. Do you actively submit to heavenly or human authority? And so we're going to see in the passage this morning what that looks like that question being asked. So first, what we're going to see in verses 23 through 27 is this. Failure, failure to submit to the Father's authority and agents will expose your fraud and folly. Failure to submit to the Father's authority and agents, those authorized by God, will expose your fraud and your folly. Look at verse 23. And when he had entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. Now, let's just pause for a minute. Let's remind ourselves 
where Jesus is. So there should be a picture, uh, the same picture I had a couple weeks ago, of the temple. There it is. So remember this? Remember the temple complex? It's that big old rectangle thing. In the center of it is the actual temple. But you've got this big old temple complex that Jesus has entered. Where is Jesus when he is teaching? He's probably in that bigger court teaching. That would be normal. Uh, He might be in one of the colonnades that borders the edge of this thing. But what is he doing? He's teaching in this court outside the central temple structure, and he's teaching publicly, right? Who is he teaching? He's teaching crowds. Maybe he's giving some version of the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe he's teaching something else, but he's teaching. So what he is engaged in is a very public activity, just as what he did the day before in overturning tables and chairs and uh, confronting people, worshipers and sellers alike in the temple. Uh, it's all very public, but he's teaching publicly. And then as he's teaching publicly in this space, you can see across the courtyard, leadership, a group of leadership approaching. And who is that leadership? It is the chief priests and the elders of the people. The chief priests are some, uh, they have some priestly lineage, some Levitical lineage, and they are responsible for what goes on in the temple complex. The elders of the people are just that. They're the the lay leaders of the people of Israel at large, representatives. Uh, They could be Pharisees, they could be Sadducees, they could be neither, but they are uh, lay leaders. And you've got the temple leaders and the lay leaders of the people coming to approach Jesus as he's teaching publicly, that's important, And they say this, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, formally, that's a question. What are they asking? They're asking, well, where does your authority, where does your appeal to authority come from? What's the source? What's the source? Were you authorized by some rabbi? Uh, Are you claiming this comes from God? What authority are you doing these things? Who gave it to you? Who delegated to you this authority? Now, they're, they're asking a question, but we understand, given the context, this isn't really a question, is it? This is a challenge. This is a challenge because of what Jesus has just did. What's the these things they're talking about? Who, who gave you authority to do these things? What's the these things? Well, what did he just do yesterday? He disrupted all of the buying and the selling. Uh, he had kids in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And he's teaching today, this day that they approach him. So all of that, considered as a package, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? It's a challenge. Because why? They perceive of themselves as the leadership. They perceive of themselves as in charge of the temple system, the temple structure. And they are asking this question. Why are they even asking a question like this? Because as the authorities, they have the right to an answer. By merely asking this question, they are saying, we are the authorities, here's our question to you, we demand an answer to you, for, from you by what authority you're doing these things. Now, before we go any farther, the issue of authority has been very much in place in Matthew as a whole. Jesus has claimed to be the king. He just proclaimed to be the king in no uncertain terms, riding on those donkeys into Jerusalem, receiving uh, the, 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 the praise from the kids in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. He has said, I'm the son of David. I'm the king. 
That's what he has received for himself. But even beyond that, elsewhere in Matthew, uh, you can think of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. After he's done this teaching, what does it say? They recognized his authority. He was teaching with authority, not as their scribes. Or even later, he heals, and the people recognize, they, say, they give glory to God for giving such authority to men. So this question has already been answered many times in many ways in the book of Matthew. Jesus' authority is from heaven because he is God the Son incarnate. That is where his authority lies. So in some sense, the answer to this question is very simple. But let's think about this. If Jesus just answers their question point blank, well, my authority is from God. I am the Son of God. Come down uh, to do these things. What is he doing? He's yielding to their authority. They asked the question, they demanded an answer because they are saying, we're the authorities here, and you have to answer to us. So if Jesus just straight up answers their question, he's yielded to their authority, which he cannot do because he is a superseding authority. So how does Jesus handle this? He doesn't answer them. He responds to them with another question. Verse 24, Jesus responds to them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. So now Jesus flips the tables. He says, well, let's play this game on my terms. Let's play this game on my terms. I'll ask you a question, and then I'll answer yours. Now, you might think, well, okay, if these guys, these um, chief priests and elders of the people understand what's going on, they might say, hey, whoa, 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 we're the one asking the questions here because we're the authorities. But uh, evidently, Jesus doesn't give them any time because he immediately jumps into verse 25, the baptism of John, the baptism of John. You know, Jesus has set the ground rules. Uh, you answer my question, I'll answer yours. And then he goes right into verse 25, the baptism of John, which is just kind of a summary, a shorthand way of talking about John the Baptist's whole ministry. And we're going to talk about that and revisit that here in a minute. But he asks this, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? You see what Jesus is doing here? He's essentially asking the same question that the religious leaders just asked of him. But, uh, and he acknowledges there's only two sources of legitimate religious authority. You can either appeal, and it could be actually true that your authority is delegated by God, or... Your authority is just man-made. It came out of, uh, out of your own head. You're some sort of pretend false prophet. You're trying to gather a following. And so your authority is from man. Those are your only two options. So essentially the same question they asked of him, he now asks of them, but not with regard to himself, but with regard to John. Now you might be like, well, is that a dodge? Is he just changing the subject? No, because as we will see, John's ministry and Jesus' ministry are inseparably intertwined. And really what he's going to talk about with John's ministry is going to dictate how they respond to Jesus. And even by going and talking about John's ministry, he's actually hinting at where his authority comes from as well. So uh, the, uh, he brings up the topic of the baptism of John, the ministry of John the Baptist. We need to remind ourselves what that was all about. Because, as is clear from this passage and elsewhere, John's ministry had a wide reach. Like, everyone knew about John the Baptist's ministry, and everyone had an opinion on it. So what was John's ministry all about? Well, go back to Matthew 3. Matthew 3. 
We were here about two years ago in Matthew 3. Hey, uh, you want to compare our pace through Matthew with uh, some other expository preachers? We're doing really, really good. So um, anyway, Matthew 3, Matthew 3 is where we get introduced to John the Baptist and the description of his ministry. So what we're doing right now is we're just trying to remind ourselves of John's ministry. What was it all about? Uh, and who was involved, okay? So Matthew 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Where is he at? He's in the wilderness of Judea. In other words, he's not in the north where Jesus spent most of the time in Matthew and Galilee. He's in the south near Jerusalem. And what is his message? Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what uh, the, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near is the idea. And what does he mean by that? The idea of the kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom in the Old Testament. This is the kingdom of Messiah. Uh, the God is going to rule from heaven through his Messiah over the whole world. So it is the kingdom authorized and coming from, ultimately, heaven. And it's drawn near. Uh, but the idea of the kingdom of heaven drawing near also was coupled in the Old Testament with the idea of the day of the Lord. The idea that God himself is going to come down to earth to reign, but when that happens, God is going to judge. He is going to judge his people in the sense of he's going to judge uh, Israel and the nations, and he is going to judge and condemn those who are not truly following him as the one true God, but he's also, in that same, by that same stroke, he's going to rescue those who do have true faith. And so this idea of the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, it becomes the impetus. It's like saying, hey, the day of the Lord's coming near, the judgment's coming near. So what's the proper response? The proper response is repentance. What is repentance? We've said it multiple times through the book of Matthew. Repentance is not just deeds. Uh, as John will say, it will result in deeds, but true repentance goes deeper. True repentance is not just a mental change of mind. It is an allegiance change. It is surrender or living for sin and self and for other false gods and idols. And it is turning and bowing the knee in allegiance, in faith, to the one true God and to the Messiah. So that is John's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the same message that Jesus is going to have and has seen, and we have seen through Matthew. Uh, what else? Verse 3. For this, So that's part of John's ministry. His ministry is a message of repentance because the kingdom has drawn near, judgment is coming. Verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, now catch this. So first, why is he wearing that clothing? Because he's supposed to be Elijah, and Elijah was supposed to come before the day of the Lord. So that just accentuates his message. But look at verse 5. Who comes out? Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. In other words, who heard John's ministry? Jerusalem, where Jesus is in the temple in Matthew 21. They heard this ministry... That's why he's bringing it up. They all went out to him, all the people. And as we see, the leadership went out as well. 
What were they doing? All these people going out. Verse 6, and they were baptized by him, immersed into water in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So what is John calling for? John is calling for repentance. How is that repentance expressed? Initially, it is expressed through going, uh, being immersed into water. And as you are being immersed into water, these people are confessing their sins. Why is that? Well, the imagery of baptism goes into the Old Testament because what ca- um, the, 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 the initial creation, everything was covered with water, and then a new creation came out. Uh, the flood, everything was covered with water, and then a new creation came out. Uh, Israel goes through the Red Sea, and they come out. Every time that this happens, this pattern happens in the Old Testament, what comes out is a new creation and a kingly and priestly people. And John's message is, okay, you, Israel, you think you are the kingdom of priests, but actually you need to repent. And how do you need to express that repentance? You need to go through the waters of judgment and salvation, the waters of baptism to express that repentance, confessing your sin. So that's part of John's ministry. His message is repentance. How is that repentance expressed? It's expressed initially through going through the waters of baptism and it confessing sin. But there's more to it than that a little bit. Look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, so these are people probably from Jerusalem, probably some of the same crowd that Jesus is talking to in Matthew 21, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Now catch this, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Doesn't that sound familiar, bearing fruit? We were just talking about that last week. In fact, this is one of the passages we mentioned. Because John's ministry is not just, all right, do this action of baptism and you're good to go. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it is expressing your initial repentance, but repentance is allegiance change. If you have a true allegiance change, that's going to change your whole life and how you act. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's part of his ministry. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. What else do we get about John's ministry there? Well, he says, just because you're physically descended from Abraham, that doesn't mean you're okay. You need to express repentance through baptism and through living a life in keeping with that repentance. But he also says this, I'm not the end. There's someone coming after me who's going to baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is connected with the institution of the new covenant in the Old Testament where the Spirit would indwell God's people so that they can obey, so that they can bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he's also going to baptize with fire. He's going to baptize with judgment. That is John's ministry. So summing it up, With John's ministry, what was John's ministry all about? It was about saying, the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, judgment is coming, so the proper response is repentance. How do you express that repentance? You you express it initially through the waters of baptism and living by faith in uh, God and living by faith through his Messiah who's coming and is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit so that you can bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That is John's ministry. And all of that is referred to, just in the little phrase, the baptism of John in Matthew 21... Jesus is bringing 
this up. Verse, chapter 21, verse 25, the baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And this is great. We get the huddle. We get, they huddle together. They discuss it among themselves, and we get to hear their reasonings. So let's listen to what they, the, the, the chief priests, the temple leadership, and the elders of the people, the leaders of Israel by and large, what are they saying? What do they think about this? Now, why, why do they even answer? Like, why are they even going to the trouble of answering? Well, Jesus has kind of caught them because they can't not answer this question. They can't not answer this question because why? The question was asked publicly. There's crowds nearby that heard John's baptism in his ministry. So they've got to answer the question. So, okay, let's huddle up. Let's figure out how to answer this question. If we say from heaven, meaning this, the ministry of John was authorized by God, it was delegated by God, it came and was sourced in God ultimately from heaven. Well, if we say that, he's going to say to us, why then did you not believe him? There's the language of faith. What, was, what would believing the, uh, the John mean? What does it mean to believe John? It means believing his message that the kingdom has drawn near, that judgment is coming, and that you need to repent, and by expressing that repentance through baptism, through confessing your sins, and then living a life in bearing fruits and keeping with repentance. That's what it would have meant to believe John. And they acknowledge, look, just by how they answer, they don't believe it came from heaven. They don't, right? Because they acknowledge implicitly that we didn't believe John, and, and uh, so they don't believe it came from heaven. And we see that unfold even more. So that's it. We can't do that because now we're going to look bad. We're going to look bad. If we say, we don't actually believe this, but if we were to just say and lie that uh, it came from heaven to look good, well, we would, we would, he would just come right back and say, well, you didn't believe him. You didn't, you didn't act in the way that he called for. So what's the alternative? Verse 26, but if we say from man, meaning what? Uh, John did just was acting on his own initiative. He was trying to gather a following. He's not actually from God, which is what they actually believe. But if we say that, notice this, we are afraid of the crowd. So what does this communicate? That on the one level, they don't believe John's ministry came from God. They actually believe it came from man, but because of their authority, it's more than that. What is their authority? What's their authority base? People. It's man. Because why? They fear the crowd. That's their authority base. It's not only that they don't believe that John, uh, that, that John was acting uh, from authority from man, but they themselves act by that same authority from man. Because why? Whatever your authority is, that's what you fear. Whatever your authority is, that is what you fear. And so they're afraid of the crowd because they're authority-based. Now, keep in mind who we're talking about here. Temple leadership and the leadership of Israel. Where should their authority be? In God. And yet their authority, their rooted authority is the crowds. Man. So they're in a dilemma. Jesus has put them in a dilemma. It's brilliant. They can't say from heaven, because then they're going to look bad. They can't say from man, because we are afraid of the crowd. Why are they afraid of the crowd? For all, notice that, all 
hold that John was a prophet. So what are they saying? He's saying, well, everyone, all the crowds, basically, they believe that John's authority was from heaven. So if we say it's from man, they're going to uh, look down on us. So either way, we're in trouble. So what do they try to do? They try to take door number three. They try to take door number three. Okay, this will get us out. We're in a bind here. Um, so what are we going to do? Verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. They're going to plead ignorance. Now they think that's an escape, but actually they just undermine their own authority because you let someone pretending to be a prophet, pretending to be Elijah loose in your land for how many years, proclaiming a message, and you guys, the temple leadership and the elders of the people who are supposed to be the most discerning about these sort of things, um, and that all the populace believe this guy was a prophet, you let that happen with the understanding that you don't know? You're supposed to know. So they think they've escaped, but they rock right into a trap. They've undermined their own authority, which was Jesus' design. He's showing these guys they are, they are foolish and they're frauds. They're foolish and they're frauds. And that's been an issue in Matthew the whole time, that the leadership, yes, the nation at large, but the leadership is corrupt. It is man-centered, not God-centered. It's doing all that it's doing for show rather than fearing God. So they answer, we don't know. And Jesus acts according to his, uh, his uh, deal that he set up with them. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And so what did Jesus just do? He deflected their challenge to his authority because he didn't answer their question. If he would have answered their question, he would have submitted to their authority. He reset the terms on his terms as the true authority, as the son of David, as the king. And he does what? He exposes, you guys are frauds. And he does it publicly. He does it publicly. And he's also hinted at, at the same time, if you believe what John said, then you're going to know where my authority comes from, too. You see, failure to submit to the Father's authority and his agents, his authorized agents, will expose your fraud and your folly. True authority, true religious authority, is sourced in God. Fraudulent authority is sourced in humans. And if you're submitting to a merely human authority, it will expose your fraud and your folly. It might take some time, but eventually your authority that you're claiming, if it's rooted in ultimately human authority, will be exposed as a fraud. Let's think about uh, the uh, authority that our culture values. We've talked about this multiple times, but I keep bringing it up because we need to think about it. Expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the God of our culture. It is the authority of our culture. What does expressive individualism say? It says the individual has the right, the self-autonomy, to be able to declare whatever it's the individual wants to be. So if you want, you're a man and you want to be a woman, you can be a woman. If you're a human being and you want to be a cat, you can be a cat um, because the authority is rooted in the individual and only the individual and every other individual around that individual has to bow the knee to that authority. It is a human authority. And uh, is that uh, self-autonomous authority being exposed as a fraud and folly? Absolutely. 
it's absurd. <laughs> and people are, have this cognitive dissonance in their minds, right? Like, uh, uh, we're going we're gonna to let a uh, biological male compete in female sports. And it's like, well, yeah, because of expressive individualism. But then this guy blo is blowing, uh, this girl is blowing all these other women out of the water. It's absurd. It's stupid. It's foolish. Because it's a human-rooted authority. Now, you might be congratulating yourself and saying, well, man, I'm glad I'm not bought into that ideology. Well, wait just a minute. Because you can live a very nice and moral and religious life and still be self-autonomous just like these guys were. The question is, who ultimately governs your decisions? Who do you ultimately bow the knee to? To yourself? Well, you can do that in a nice way that doesn't look like claiming you're, if you're a man, you're a biological female or vice versa. The thing is, I, like I said it at the beginning, we all start as self-autonomous or at least claiming self-autonomy because that's what Adam and Eve did. They're trying to step out from under God's authority and live their own life. And it may, whatever does it for you, maybe it's money, maybe it's, uh, uh, maybe it's how you, it's, uh, maybe it's human praise, maybe it's something else. But the question at the end of the day is, are you bowing the knee to yourself or are you bowing the knee to God? Attempted self-rule and self-authorization is the oldest human sin. We all start this way. We all start as rebels. Does Jesus dictate your life, or do you dictate your life? That is what it boils down to. How do you make decisions with time and money? That's going to expose. Where does your authority lie? How do you work and you play? How do you treat others? How do you treat your family? How do you treat the church? That's going to show what you value and what your authority is. But who has God authorized as legitimate authority? He has authorized the prophets, Jesus, the apostles. He has authorized the scriptures. And the question is, will you submit to them in repentance and faith, or will you try to protect your own self-rule? That's what these guys are doing. They're protecting, they're guarding their own self-rule. So the question is, are you going to submit to what God says to his authority and to his authorized agents, whether we're talking prophets, Jesus, the apostles, the scriptures, uh, the elders in your life, that sort of a thing, or are you going to try to guard your own self-rule? But, you know, at the end of the day, if you're still bowing the knee to yourself and your own self-rule, you're going to be exposed as a fraud on judgment day when the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, when Jesus stands before you on his throne, and you're going to stand up to him and you're going to say, well, no, I have my autonomy. You made me autonomous. You're going to be exposed in the most humiliating way possible on Judgment Day unless you bow the knee now in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you might say, okay, we've talked about uh, if you submit to a human authority, you're going to be exposed. But what does submission to God look like? What does that mean? What does it mean to, to, to submit to a heavenly authority? Well, that brings us to our second point and where Jesus goes next with these guys because he's not done with them. Uh, and, and this is what we see in verses 28 through 32. 
Here's what submission looks like, or what we can start to characterize as it looks like. Entrance into the Father's kingdom comes through a working belief in the message of the Father's agents. Entrance into the Father's kingdom comes through a working belief in the message of the Father's uh, um, agents. Look at verse 28. Now, did you notice in your Bibles, uh, Jesus was talking in verse 27, and he's still talking in verse 28. Meaning what? This is a different, um, it, 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 he switches topic, but he's still talking to the same people. He's still talking to the chief priests and uh, the elders of the people. And so now having, you know, they, they've just undermined their authority by saying, well, we don't know. And Jesus like, he brings up another issue. What do you think? So he's trying to engage them in a parable he's about to tell. A man had two children. It's actually a generic term. It's not, doesn't necessarily mean sons, although it is sons in this passage. Man had two children. So he's bringing up a parable in a situation. And he went to the first and said, child, go and work in the vineyard today. Now that's a normal thing. You know, you have the family operation. We got a family farm, a uh, family vineyard in this case. Um, he goes to a, his first child and he says, go and work in the vineyard. Go, go work today. Now, pause. Remember I said last week with the fig tree thing, uh, how fig trees are often paired with vines and vineyards? Uh, it's not a, uh, it, it, we see that language here. We're going to see it way more next week. So just remember that for, for next week. Tuck that away. But in, in general, the, the father says, child, go and work in the vineyard. And he answered, I am not willing. Now, this is an honor-shame culture, which that is a very shameful thing to say to your dad. It's a shameful thing to say now, but now we just say, oh, it's just a teenager or whatever. But in that culture, that is so disrespectful and so shameful that the son would say that. His father told him, go work in the vineyard, and he says outright, no, I'm not willing to do it. But notice what happens. But afterward, he changed his mind, or he regretted. There's some grief here. And he went. And the idea is he went and actually did go and work in the vineyard. Verse 30, and he, this is the father, the man, he went to the other child and said to the same. So he's telling his, this other child, go and work in the vineyard today. And this child answers, I go, sir. And that's, in the original, it's just like, um, yeah, I'll go. Yeah, definitely. And even the term sir, it's the, the, the word that normally means Lord. This is a very respectful response. I'll go. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Yeah, I'll do it, sir. I'll do it, Lord. I'll do what you say. And he did not go. Verse 31. So remember, Jesus is telling this to the chief priests and the elders of the people. Which of the two, and he's getting them to think about it, which of the two did the will of his father. Very key phrase. Which of the two children did the will of his father? They said the first. And they're right. They're right. Now, the ideal response, of course, uh, right, as, as parents, uh, you want the ideal response, yes, I go, and they go do it, right? That, that's the ideal response. But given the scenario, who actually did what was required of them? The first. Even though he started with a shameful response, a very disrespectful and disobedient response, he ended up going and doing what he was told to do. 
Whereas the second had a very beautiful, nice-sounding response, but didn't go, and he didn't do what the father asked him to do. We get this. They're right. The first. And then Jesus draws the conclusions. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, which again is, listen up, hear what I'm about to say is important. The tax collectors and the prostitutes. Now remember the tax collectors, guys like Matthew, they would collect tolls and they would usually collect more than they were, uh, they were supposed to. And so they were viewed as traitors, greedy and traitors and sinful. Prostitutes, we all understand what's going on there. But these are like the lowest of the low in that society, right? These are like the scum, the social scum. Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going ahead of you towards the kingdom of God. That's the idea of the language here, I believe, is he's saying they're going ahead of you. The scum is going ahead of you towards the kingdom of God. Uh, why do I translate it that way? Well, because the kingdom of God in Matthew, which is equivalent to the kingdom of heaven, is always future. It's always, well, it's come near, but it's not here yet. When will it arrive? Well, when the Messiah reigns on his throne over Israel and over the whole world, that's in the fullness of everything that God has promised, that's when the kingdom arrives. And it's equated with eternal life. It's equated, essentially, in Matthew with, with, with heaven. But the imagery has been that Jesus has used as of a path you were to go back to Matthew 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what has he talked about? He talks about, well, there's two ways. There's a narrow way and there's a broad way. At the end of that uh, narrow way or broad way, there's a narrow gate or a broad gate. That narrow gate is going to lead you into the kingdom of heaven, and you're going to enter there. The broad gate is going to lead you into destruction. Those are the two ways and the only two ways. So Jesus picks up that analogy again, and he's saying, look, uh, the scum, the social scum are ahead of you in this path into eternal life. It's almost like the picture is the chief priests and the elders of the people who should be way far along the path, right? Headed in the right direction towards the kingdom. They're stock still. And here comes the social scum passing them up, heading right on their way into the kingdom of heaven. Why? Why does Jesus say this? Verse 32 for John, see, he hasn't abandoned John the Baptist. John the Baptist is still very much in view. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. What does that mean? John laid out, here's what the way of righteousness looks like. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Confess your sins, go through the waters of baptism, exercise faith in God and his Messiah, and live a life bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. That's the way of righteousness. What does he say? John came to you in the way of righteousness. He laid it out for you. Jesus is saying, hey, he's, uh, John was from heaven. Remember the question I just asked you guys was John's authority from, from uh, man or from heaven? It's from heaven. But you did not believe him. You didn't repent. You didn't get baptized. You didn't bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Meaning what? They repented, they were baptized, they confessed their sins, and they committed to bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. In Luke, you can see this. Uh, different groups come up to John and they say, uh, the you know, tax collectors come up to John and they say, hey, what do we need to do? And he says, well, don't collect more than you're authorized. So that's what fruit looks like in keeping with repentance. And evidently the same happened with prostitutes. They believed him. 
But notice this, and this is how Jesus connects it with the parable he just told. And even when you saw it, chief priests and elders of the people, you did not afterward change your minds. You didn't regret and believe him. In other words, what are the correspondences with the parable that Jesus just gave? The man is the father in heaven. The first son is the tax collectors and prostitutes. They gave an initially shameful response, and yet they changed their mind and repented. The second child in the parable is the chief priests and elders. They gave a beautiful sounding, nice, respectful response, and yet they're not actually doing the will of the Father. And Jesus is saying, hey, when you saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes uh, repenting and changing and living and bearing fruits in keeping with repentance, that should have spurned you on to change your mind, to grieve, and to believe. You should have repented. You should have received baptism, confessing sins. You should have borne fruits in keeping with repentance, but you haven't. Jesus hasn't closed the door on them, but he is exposing them. He's saying, look, if you guys don't move from where you're at, you're not entering. The chief priests, or the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're ahead of you. They're on the path. They're heading towards the kingdom. You guys are stock still stuck because you won't repent, because you're guarding your authority, because you didn't believe the heaven-sent authority from God, God's agent, John, who also did what? Pointed to the Messiah. They are not receiving Jesus as the Messiah because they didn't receive John. They didn't receive John. You see, doing the Father's will, see that key phrase in the parable? Which one of the two did the will of his Father? Doing the Father's will is a key phrase in Matthew. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount. Doing the Father's will is walking righteously in the way that Jesus and the Father describe. That, that's what it means. It means doing what God has revealed in the Scriptures, the commands of God, the commands of Jesus in the Scriptures. It means living that life. But it's not as if uh, Jesus is saying, or John was saying, all right, uh, clean up your act so that you're acceptable to God. No, what they were saying is you need to bow the knee. You need to have a fundamental allegiance change. And for your love for God and love for his Messiah, and because the Messiah is going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and enable you to walk a righteous life, you need to do fruit. Uh, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You need to do the will of the Father. Doing the Father's will is a matter of action, not merely of external show and words. Look back at Matthew 7 briefly. Let's hear it from the mouth of Jesus directly. I mean, we already have. We are in Matthew 21, but let's... He said this before. Look at Matthew 7, 21. In that same context where he's talking about the narrow way and the broad way. Um, Matthew 7, 21 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not doing the Father's will means that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You may have the most outwardly religious and spiritual-sounding person. You may know the gospel. You may know all of the correct doctrine. You may know the correct doctrine of the Trinity. You may know that the gospel is that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, and you need to repent and entrust Jesus Christ, and he will justify you and give you righteousness. You may know that Jesus is God, the Son incarnate. You may know all of those things, and it may sound very, very good. And you still might not be doing the will of the Father in heaven. And if you're not doing the will of the Father in heaven, you're not going to enter. That's what Jesus says. You can have all the spiritual, religious sounding words, and it all looks good, it all sounds good on the exterior, but at the end of the day, a repentant prostitute will enter the kingdom ahead of you if you're all words and no action, if you're all leaves and no fruit. Has Jesus Christ changed your life? Because you love him and are loyal to him, are there real, concrete changes in your life? Are you growing in righteousness, growing in love for others, growing in service to others, growing in kindness, evangelism, giving to the church, discipleship. We could go on and on. Justice in your dealings with others. There are many, many facets to what it looks like in life to do the will of the Father. But the question is, is there change? Is there fruit? Because if there isn't, no fruit, no doing the will of the Father, no life. No life from Jesus and no entry into the kingdom. And it's not a matter of, okay, I'm going to clean up my act, so I'm, I'm acceptable to God. You cannot. That is the whole point. Where does it start? Allegiance change, repentance, and faith in the Messiah who will baptize with the Holy Spirit to enable you to live and do the Father's will. I'm going to pay a, a specific concrete application of this. Did you notice in what Jesus is saying and talking about John's ministry, a key component is baptism. Why? Why is that so big a deal? Because baptism portrays I'm filthy, I'm a sinner, I'm going to confess my sins, and I need cleansing. I need to die. I need to drown them so bad. But I know that, and we see this um, subsequent to Jesus' resurrection, I am identified with Christ in his death, and I live because of Christ. Believing John meant baptism. Believing Jesus means the same thing. Now, this is a specific application, but we see this. Part of doing the Father's and Jesus' will is expressing repentance and faith through immersion in the waters of baptism. Matthew 28 what does Jesus say? Go make disciples, make followers of Jesus. That's going to come from repentance and faith, but what's it going to look like? How do you express that repentance? Through baptism. 
uh, Acts 2.38, uh, Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, to Jews, Jews are saying, hey, brothers, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Does that mean the water changes you? It's magical? No, but it is an expression of the allegiance that does change you. It's a humbling and public thing to go up and say, I was a sinner. Uh, here's how my life looked like before Jesus and I'm filthy, and that's why I'm coming to the waters of baptism today. That's why the religious leaders didn't do it. Because they wanted to look good. They wanted the exterior show. So if you know what baptism is and symbolizes, and yet you refuse it, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't mishear me. I am not saying that baptism saves you. It does not. It didn't in Jesus' day. It didn't in John's day. It's not a mechanical thing that you just do because it's, it's rooted in repentance and faith. Doesn't mean that the thief on the cross didn't make it because Jesus said that he did. But that's a, an exception, right? Like the thief would have gotten baptized if he could have. I'm not talking about those who are ignorant, who don't know that baptism is so important. You, you may not know, and in fact, unfortunately, the church in our culture has not emphasized the importance of baptism and what it symbolizes. Because it's so important to get wet in church? No, because it expresses allegiance and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about our faithful uh, brothers and sisters uh, who believe in paedo-baptism. I'm not talking about them. I'm not talking about those who sincerely hold an errant view and practice of baptism. But I'm talking about those who know what baptism is and it symbolizes and yet refuse to do it. What you are doing is you are saying with your words, yeah, I like Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to repent. I, I, I believe in Jesus. And then you're refusing his commands. You're just like the chief priests and elders of the people. You're not going to enter because it's not about what you say. It's about what you do rooted in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Because Jesus is going to die for his people in place of their sin. And he's lived the perfect righteous life that we could not live. So what is the proper response? Repentance and faith expressed initially in the waters of baptism. And there's good news this morning. There's such good news. Do you see how this ends this morning? The, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the foulest sinners you can think of, can be washed clean through Jesus. Or maybe you're a hypocrite this morning. Maybe you're a play actor. Maybe you're like the elders and the chief priests. There's good news for you, too. This is why Jesus does this. He's shaking them. He's saying, wake up, guys. If you've been autonomous, submitting to and guarding your own authority rather than following Jesus... You can grieve over this, repent, and place your faith in Jesus and be cleansed just like the religious leaders would have if they would have repented. And in fact, in Acts, we do see some of them repent. It wasn't too late for them. It's not too late for you. The question is, do you, will you actively submit to heavenly or human authority? Let's pray.
Oh, Lord God, we are all rebels, naturally. We all are self-autonomous. We all live for ourselves. And Lord, please forgive us. Please forgive us. And Lord, we know we can only change through you, Lord Jesus, through your death and resurrection, through you giving us the Spirit so that we can obey and do your will, Lord Jesus, and do the Father's will. Oh Lord, help us to be single-hearted, single-minded in our devotion, in our surrender, in our submitting to your authority, Lord God. Even when it is very uncomfortable, it strikes at our flesh and strikes at our pride. Lord, we ask these things. I pray for any in this room who not know you, who have not bowed the knee, Lord, humble them. Do business with them. Show them your tenderness and your toughness and draw them with cords of love and devotion to yourself. We would ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.